Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 460. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 460 you're listening to. My guest today is audio engineer and production manager, Abigail LaBianca, based out of Nashville, Tennessee, who's worked with Lindsey Sterling, Sarah Evans, and Philip Phillips, to name a few. And we're going to talk all about Abigail's journey in the world of live sound and production management and we're going to do that very soon. So, Abigail Labiaca coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about home rigs. All right, my fellow pros out there, this is not exactly geared towards you. So if you want to tune this out and jump to the interview, great. If you want to hang in there for the duration, great. Either way, to my new audio folks out there, students, up-and-comers, whoever you are, weekend warriors, anybody wanting to turn pro, let's talk about this. We are at a time in the world of audio where if you don't have some kind of regular rig that you can go to and work, you need to get on the ball, my friends. So what do I mean by that? Okay, so... Unless you have a studio you have regular access to, like you can go in at any time, you know, keys to a space, a shared space, doesn't have to be in the home, but you know, home would be ideal. You need to make sure that you have that access. A lot of my pro friends out there don't like having stuff at home. They like that separation, totally respect that. I could not operate if I did not have what I've got here at home. So why is that important? Well, it's important because it reduces your overhead, number one, and it gives you the opportunity to jump on any kind of work opportunities that should come your way. And as I've talked about time and time again, opportunities come when you least expect them to. They do not come when it's convenient. And when they arrive, you have to be ready to say yes. But if you're in a position where it's like, hey, we need you to do something and we might need it tomorrow or the next day, and you're like, oh, I only get the studio I have access to three days from now, you might be out of luck. So maybe consider at minimum having a laptop with a DAW, don't care what computer, don't care what DAW, as long as you have a rig that you can put on a pair of headphones and make some edits to, make some mix changes, do some mastering, whatever it is. Whatever it is that's coming in the door, edit a podcast. Sure, we could do that too. You know, I love podcasts. But the whole point is to have something that you can work with on a moment's notice or make adjustments to an existing project at a moment's notice. And I know I'm in a fortunate situation. I live and own a home and not everybody does. So even if you've got an apartment and you've got 10 roommates, you need to have some kind of rig. So obviously a small footprint rig that doesn't fill the room with sound if, if, if that's an issue. 
Maybe you live in San Francisco and you've got neighbors above and neighbors below and you don't have uh, a sound isolated room. Having a small footprint rig that you can do most of the work on headphones and some of the work on small speakers. Some small speakers could be Kali Audio INUNF system. That's a, a system that sits right on the desk and aims the drivers of the speakers right at your ears so you don't really have to rattle the room. Also, the IK Multimedia iLoud speakers, it's very small. Those could work to complement some headphones that can give you a bigger picture, a more detailed picture. And some kind of DAW. You know, obviously, if you're playing with everybody else in the world, Pro Tools, I think, is, is one of the more dominant ones. Logic, of course. I know, Reaper, you folks are like a cult, and I love you for it. Reaper's a great DAW. Uh, so if, if cost is a factor, but you need the most bang for your buck, obviously Reaper is a great choice. I'm not so big on, on Ableton in, in terms of being a mixing DAW. Some of you may send me hate mail for that. Uh, I just don't, I'm, I don't buy it. I don't think it's the right tool. Obviously there's the Cubendo folks, right? The Nuendo and Cubase folks or Cubase and Nuendo folks. That's a great DAW and that's a whole side tangent. You know, whatever DAW you've got, whatever computer you've got, put it to work. Make it work for you. Make it uh, generate income for you. It's a tool to get the job done. So let's not obsess over the, the minutia of what tool you're going to pick. Just pick a tool that does the job. And we're talking about mostly mixing, editing, mastering kind of tasks. If we're talking about tracking, um, boy, that's a tough one. If you're in, a, in an apartment, with neighbors close by guitar tracking yeah you could use some guitar sims and now that, that'll be fine putting uh, a basement and a big cab in your in your uh room your that you share with your roommates that's that's going to be a little challenging now maybe you're doing some voiceover work for somebody maybe you have a voiceover client that could that could work but at the end of the day you know really no matter what it is having a, a small rig you don't have to own every plug-in under the sun. You don't have to have every piece of gear, but you just got to have something that's going to allow you to get some basic stuff done so that when the call comes, when when the, the email arrives, when the Instagram message arrives and somebody says, I got a gig for you, boom, you can do it. So not much more to this other than what I've just told you. So I'm not going to keep saying the same shit over and over again. Just at the end of the day, get yourself a rig, make it work for you. You can improve over time. Obviously your living situation will change over time, but if you have something that you can shove in a backpack and move around with, and uh, that's cool. Hey, you know what? Even if you got to go to the library with a pair of headphones to get the job done, do it. Or the coffee shop. If you're going to do that, pick closed back headphones, by the way. But that's it. Rigs at home these days, I think are essential and they are a vital part of staying employed and uh, being able to take on all kinds of different work because so much can be done inside most of our DAWs that we have these days. And no, you don't need the latest laptop, although get something that's functional that's not going to hold you up and whatever you can afford. But that's it. Get your shit together at home so that you can operate better in the world and take advantage of those opportunities when they show up. That's my rant. Thanks for listening.
Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Abigail LaBianca here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Abby, welcome to the podcast. Hello, how are you? I'm great. You're joining us from Nashville, Tennessee, one of my favorite places in the United yeah. States. We're going to jump into your background. So let's start with where you grew up. So I grew up in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I was there until I was like 17, but I like to say I'm from New Jersey because my whole family is from New Jersey. And I just relate to the Jersey. I was born there and then I moved away and then, but I just relate to the Jersey lifestyle more. I drive like I'm from Jersey. So I feel like that's all I need. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. Uh huh. Brothers, sisters? I have five siblings total. Three sisters, two brothers. Okay. All homeschooled our entire lives. Oh my gosh. Your poor parents. 
Stuck with all those kids at home. They loved it. Yeah. They were all about it. Jeez, I can barely handle two, much less five, six. Damn. <laughs> Growing up, were you homeschooled all the way through high school? Mm-hmm. From from birth to high school. I did a couple years of an online school. I was the trailblazer for online school before it was cool. <laughs> but this was in 2013, 2014. And my last two years, I was doing like an online thing. And then I went to college and that was my first time with human interaction. It was great. And, you know, usually I ask people, okay, so in school, were you in band or anything? So how does that work in a homeschool environment? And did you have exposure to music or playing an instrument at home? Typically, it would be a normal thing. You'd go to like co-ops and you would have youth group or whatever and do homeschool type things. But that wasn't my experience, unfortunately. So I was super isolated growing up and wasn't allowed to have friends or do anything. And so... I just stayed home, but I like dove into music fully. Like my dad, he owned a studio in the basement and he had done, him and my mom when they were younger had done touring together because he was a musician. And so I, that was the building blocks for me. So I was learning guitar and piano and building my own little mini studio up in the attic. I would be looking through like musicians, friends, magazines each Christmas and be like, that is a cool piece of equipment that I want. And so I got this little blue four track Tascam recorder and I would just bounce the hell out of everything. I would record my vocals and my guitar, bounce those together. They'd be one track and then do it again and just make songs that way. So most people that I interview are not homeschooled and most people I interview don't have a dad who's got a studio in the basement. So how much of a role did that studio play in your life growing up? Was it a point of fascination for you that he had this and was he actively using it? Oh, he actively used it for sure. And he would record all day long. We would always go down to the studio to like listen to his songs or whatever. And sometimes like he'd let me like come in and sing on it and stuff. I would never like thought about the equipment side of it, though, like just going in. I never walked in and was like, what's all this cool stuff until I got older. I remember he gave me when I was 12 and I started getting into recording my own music. He gave me this little like outdated drum pad simulator that he had and a little thesaurus rhyming book. And he's like, here, now you can have drum sounds and help rhyme all your words when you write songs. And I was like, cool. And then that just like, wow. Did you grow up in a strict home? Was it sounds oh, yeah. like it? Oh, yeah. Very strict, very Christian, conservative home. Not to like get super deep out of nowhere, just like a, an abusive environment just in general because of my dad. So I have a lot of conflicting like he sucked, but also he's the reason I'm like in music now. So it's very like ironic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two, very, yeah. Couple different points of view. They're opposing one another. So tell me how that worked with eventually leaving the house, going to college, and what drove your college decision-making as far as where to go, what to study, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going to like a little Christian liberal arts school called Messiah College. And I only went there because my other two older siblings had gone there first. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, this is really my only option. So I just went there. I was like undeclared for a while. And then I went into the TV side of it. The major was called Broadcasted Media Productions. And so I was a part of the TV studio and everything. 
and like did a little bit of audio there. But I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do for a long time. It was mm. like I knew I wanted something technology related, though. And was that that mindset, was that driven from your past of the exposure to the studio and your four track, mm -hmm. et cetera? Yeah, well, I, I really wanted to be an artist and a singer. That was my ultimate goal. Like I had a little YouTube and everything. No one look up the YouTube though. Don't do it. <laughs> don't it's do bad. It. And I don't know how to delete it. That's the problem. But I got old, I got older and I was like allowed to make a YouTube and I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And and then just going into college, I wanted to just keep doing that. So I joined a couple bands and did that for a while. You know, when you grow up in a situation such as yours, homeschooled, conservative Christian. Mm -hmm. not a lot of exposure to a lot of people. Was mm -hmm. that kind of a, just a culture shock going to college? Oh, yeah. yeah, I was just like, what? I don't know how to socialize. <laughs> I was not given those tools growing up, which is why I have a big issue with homeschooling in general, even though I do think some people do it very well. Yeah, if you're not socializing your kids, please just it's do them a favor. But yeah, I definitely had a lot of culture shock. Also, just figuring out how to do school in a normal way, too, like write a paper. Because when you're homeschooled, it's a little different, it's a little more lax. Your dad's the principal, your mom's the teacher. As far as the decision making to join bands, like that was driven obviously by the artistic side of you wanting to be an artist. Tell me about that. Tell me about the band experience. Oh, it was great. That was just a side thing that I did. I mostly like would just write music. So I would be in like the music building all the time to the point where everyone at school thought I was one of the music majors and they just assumed it because I would steal one of the piano practice rooms and just be there for hours and just write music as much as I could. Mm. And and then, yeah, I just wanted to like start performing it. But I was so scared because I did a few so of my own songs by myself first before I joined a band and I was so scared. The stage fright was off the charts. And I think to this day, that's a big reason I don't really do that. <laughs> I like being behind a console or and wearing black where I cannot be seen. <laughs> that's what I prefer. You've adopted the uniform. I know. That's great. Yeah. Was college the time in which you, you sincerely figured out that, oh, I don't really feel comfortable being on stage and therefore I'm going to pursue something else? So how that happened was my junior year of college, I went to this program. It was like a semester long program in Nashville, actually. So it's called the Contemporary Music Center. And I will rave about that place every day because basically just brings in a bunch of people from across the country from different colleges and says, here, you can pick what track you want to be. You can be an artist track, you can be a business track, and you can be a tech track. And you can pick up from any of these tracks and we'll teach you everything that you need to know about it and give you real hands-on experience. And so I went in going, I really want to be an artist. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to learn all about the technology side of it just to get my foot in the door to be an artist. Because <laughs> that makes sense. And I ended up just loving the audio side of it and the production side of it. And I was like, this is incredible. This is what I want to do. Like, I don't care to be singing anymore. Could you put your finger on it? Like, what about that trajectory appealed to you? I think part of it is because I walked in and I was one of the 15% of females that were in there. Mm. 
It was mostly guys that had some studio experience. Like you could tell that they had done this for a long time or like mixed for their churches for years and years. And I walked in and I was like, hmm, this feels strange, but it's a challenge. So I'm like really excited to like be better than everyone here. (laughs) But I ended up obviously learning a lot from all of those people. But I don't know. I think it's the challenge of not being what people expect in this industry, at least then. Less now, I feel like it's just a lot more normal to see a woman in audio. But it's still like every time I tell people what I do for work, they're like, I've never seen a woman on a mixing monitors before. I'm just like, really? What? Hello? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, really? That's so bizarre. Wow. I know. I know. But I just loved like pushing the buttons and I loved being, it kind of felt like a secret. Kind of like everyone sees the person on stage, right? But they don't have any idea what's going on behind the scenes. But it's, I'm doing a hell of a lot and they have no idea. And it's kind of thrilling in a way, you know? Yeah. Not to get deeply psychological on you, but what you said about challenging the expectations, essentially. Mm -hmm. Do you think some of that drive to do that is a little bit influenced by your upbringing? Mm-hmm. Nailed it. So you probably were never encouraged to follow a path such as this. I was always told don't try to be in the music industry because I guess my dad tried for a really long time and it just didn't work out. Like his dream was to live in Nashville and he even tried for a while and it didn't work out. And so I think he was just jaded about it. And it was just like, it's never going to work. So don't do it. Also, like I just grew up in a very fighting mindset because of the nature of him and how he treated me and my mom and my siblings because he was just an abusive person. And so I was always in just a fight mode. Like, I will prove you wrong. You're in a pissy mood. Well, I'm going to be extra happy just to make you even more upset because that's me just doing the opposite and just kind of being a rebel in that way. Mm -hmm. And so that's just how I grew up, honestly, in that mindset. And so I think the nature of the industry needing to like defy odds a little bit Mm -hmm. and like fight a little extra harder just really works for me. But like literally growing up when I was like a kid, I would ask my mom for Christmas for like a fucking hand truck. Like (laughs) I was like, I just want a hand truck because I want to push stuff around and I want to lift things. And this is me at like six years old. And she's like, why? And it just all makes sense now. It's really weird. (laughs) it's just perfect like if someone was like pick the perfect career for you handpick it for you it would be this just because of my personality oh i love it you you obviously it's somehow in your dna i mean and somehow i mean we know that it got into you essentially that studio in the basement Mm -hmm. i'm sure had a great influence so it's no big surprise that this is something that you wanted to do well so the program that you were in you're very fond of it and and it had a great outcome. What happened from there? Where did you take it from there? So after I did that, I actually had an accident at the very end of that program. So basically you put on a show every single week. You are either running monitors, you're doing front of house, you're production managing, you're doing lights or like Resolume or something. And you just kind of switch off of different positions each week because you're putting on a different show. And then at the end of the semester, you go on a tour of different colleges in the area and you take your fine-tuned show to just all these different places and you get a taste of what a tour is like. And so I was doing monitors for that tour and 
man, I loved it. It was so much fun. But at the very end, we were pushing our speaker stacks on some caddies and a wheel fell off the sidewalk and it fell on me and crushed my pelvis in three places. This was on my birthday. (laughs) And it was probably the worst pain I've ever experienced in my life. So we needed to get me rushed off to an ambulance. My mom had to drive down to Tennessee to make sure I was okay. And I was like, well, this was a great way to end this whole semester. So that sucks. So I ended up needing to like do bed rest for a month or so because you really can't do much with a pelvis. You need to just kind of sit there. So I just sat for a long time and had the walker and everything. Then once I finished doing bed rest for that, I went back to college and started picking up whatever audio jobs I could. So I worked doing like the events on campus, doing audio for that. I worked in a recording studio for a podcast and actually did editing and recording. And then I worked at Claire Brothers in their warehouse building racks. And I just built cables and racks. And I walk in up to my first interview with them in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. My interview basically consisted of, can you solder an XLR? And I was like, yes, I can, because I learned how to do it when I was in Nashville. And he was like, show me. And then I just did it. And he was like, all right, you have the job. So I sat there eight hours a day for two days a week, just soldering cables and building racks. You know what I love about what you just told me is that you just like, yeah, so I broke my pelvis in three places. I was in the <laughs> hospital, but then I just, you know, got better and I moved on. Like, yeah. you didn't dwell on it. I couldn't slow down. I was, I was too pumped up. Yeah. How old were you when that happened? 20. Okay. Okay. Well, better to break it at 20 than at 30 or 40, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But everyone was like, you're still going to like go into this industry after that happened to you? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was Why like a, a freak accident. I mean, that that doesn't happen like every single. Well, and it was my stupid mistake, too, because I was like, I can catch it. I can save it. I can fix it. <laughs> I can fix it. Speakers are, are replaceable. I am not, but I'll try to catch it. It's just, it was stupid. That was my mistake. Well, good for you. So then you, you start working at Claire Brothers. Mm-hmm. And what did you do at Claire Brothers? I um, soldered cable. I built racks. I just like a lot of the basic kind of stuff. And that's a big reason I wanted the job is because I was like, well, I want to learn how to like make a cable before I ultimately I wanted a tour. But I was like, I need to like know my building blocks first before I do that. And so that's why I was like, this warehouse fucking sucks in here. But <laughs> But I'm learning you know, about flow charts, how to wire up IEMs or whatever and, and make the cable, dress it all pretty and stuff. So, I mean, it was just a really smart thing. I'm really proud of myself, actually, to like have the insight to do that because I know so many people would just try to jump to like being on a console all the time. But I think it's important to like learn those building blocks first. Oh, I so agree. Yeah. yeah. And it's tough, too, I think. I don't know if you agree with this, but when you're younger, you really, you're like, just put me in, put me on tour, get me on the console. It's totally. Like, but to stop, slow down and learn those building blocks, like you said, I think that mm-hmm. is so important. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And good of you to embrace it and just say, I got to do this. Mm-hmm. How yeah. long did that last, that gig? I started at the last semester of my senior year and it went the whole semester. So I was there for like four months or so. But I had to drive 40 minutes every day to get there. 
because I only had classes Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. So Tuesdays, Thursdays, I would drive there for 40 minutes. And I was terrified of driving at the time because a friend of mine had just recently like gotten into an accident and died. And this is just as I got my driver's license. And every night before I had to drive into work, I could not sleep because I was so terrified that I was going to get into an accident and die. Mm. (laughs) So I was trying to like get through that mental terror that I was experiencing in order to get to work and build these racks. Were you still living at home in that time period? No, I lived at college at that point. Okay. Yeah. And then I graduated and moved. And you decided to move to Nashville? Mm Mm-mm. Maryland first, actually. Oh, okay. Because I got a job as a production coordinator at a church. Um, They were paying me $17 an hour. And at the time, I was like, that's great. That's so so much money, more than I could ask for. Sorry, $16.50. But it was actually a really cool first job out of college for me to get because A, I was running audio, Mm -hmm. but B, it was for a mobile church campus. So it was like a church in a box. So it was essentially touring every Sunday. We would get there at five in the morning. I would have my crew of volunteers. We would load in every single Sunday, have a show, have church or two or three of them and then load out. And it was the most exhausting day ever. But it felt so good to like set it up and tear it down. And I did everything too. I mean, I put up trust for lights and we had big video screen and projectors. So I just basically encompassed all of that. Wow. Really learning a lot of the elements of of a touring operation. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even realize that at the time. I was just like, oh, this is just church in a box. No biggie. But now looking back, I'm like, that was essentially a tour, honestly, because you're setting it up the same way every day. You have your crew, you're leading things break, you need to fix them during the week, you know, so. Pop-up church, right? Different location every time, right? Well, no, same location. Oh, same location. That's the only thing is that wasn't like a tour because it was the same location, but it was basically like a satellite church. So we met at a high school and we would have worship on site, but then we would stream in the sermon. It was one of those. Huh. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I have to ask, growing up in a conservative Christian home, And then being out doing this church in a box thing, was there a desire to break away from the whole Christian side of it because of how you were brought up? That's a really good question. Not really. Not at the time. I don't know. Because I I hadn't, I wasn't really like too traumatized, honestly, Mm because I had just been like doing me my whole life and just putting up a fight and just being like, I don't give a shit what anyone thinks. And so I left and I was like, cool, I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, no. It makes sense. It sounds like it was more about the the dynamic between you and your father mm-hmm. than it was about right. the religious Like aspect. just a faith in general. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a big part of it because he wasn't around anymore. And then I was like, all right, that's fine now. Where'd he go? Well, we ended up leaving in 2015. We like left in the middle of the night and packed up a bunch of cars and took off because he had guns. And so we were like scared he would shoot us in the head if he found out that we were leaving. Okay. It's a little side note. Just oh, a so side I note. So we had been estranged for a long time. Got it. This is right as I was about to graduate high school. So we were estranged. Then I went to college and I hadn't talked to him for a long time. He is dead now, unfortunately. He took his own life a few years ago which is a whole other thing. I'm actually going to therapy later today to talk about it. I'm I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) That's okay. 
it's a complicated thing because yeah. it's hard to be mad at someone when they're not around anymore, you know, yeah. and they suffered a lot from mental illness. And he it was that generation, honestly. I mean, his parents didn't want to admit that he had a mental illness because he was perfect, you know, and oh, so right. he didn't believe in therapy or medication or anything. OK, I just got the best of him, you know. Yeah. Many layers to that onion. Mm hmm. Well, so how long did Church in the Box last for you? For me, the funny thing is I started that right before COVID. I got the job July of 2019 and we were ramping up for like a few months because the launch of the church, the mobile church was in September. And so we basically went from September to March of the next year and then everything shut down. And so we ended up doing a lot of stuff online. And then I started to get into like video editing and getting into that side of things. Thankfully, I still had a job during COVID because church exists even online. And so I was reaching out to all my volunteers and making sure that they were good if they needed anything and try to figure out when to do church again. So I was there, but it was just a part-time job is the weird thing. So I ended up getting another job working as an audio tech at a casino venue place right outside Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of an on-call thing that started also right before COVID. And then I worked a few events there and then it all shut down. And I was like, well, that would have been awesome. Like they had some cool acts. They had like cool gear and I was going to learn a lot. And it shut down. So once everything opened back up, they offered me a full-time job as one of the audio engineers, which turns out I was the only one really on site. So I ended up becoming like A1 at the casino venue and I quit the church so I could work there full time mm. and worked at the venue. And then that lasted for what? That lasted until two years there total, but I ended up quitting January of 2022 because I wanted to move to Nashville. That's where it happens. That's where it happened. I was like, I ended up taking a job that paid me $10,000 less a year than I was making because I just wanted to be here. And so I took a, a huge pay cut to just get my ass down here. And I moved in March of 2022. Tell me about that moving aspect of it. Did you have any connections in Nashville? Were you the lone wolf that just like left and showed up in Nashville? I had a few friends here from that program that I did because a bunch of people would move to Nashville after that. I had a friend that he dropped out of school and then just moved to Nashville and started becoming a musician and doing all that. And so I knew I had a few people here, but I really didn't know that many people, honestly. Like I knew maybe two or three people. I was just like, if I want to work in this industry for real, I got to be where where it is. And it seems like if you look through your LinkedIn profile, for example, it continues on. It's like, you know, monitor engineer, PA, flight tech, monitor engineer, front of house, production mm -hmm. manager. At any point, did you have any desire to get into studio work? Man, yeah. Last year, I really, I really wanted to, honestly. The, it, <laughs> I kind of hyper-focus on different things. Last year was a big, I really want to get into the studio thing because that's what I started with. I say studio was my mini attic studio, but that's what I started with, writing and producing and making my own songs. And so the love of that was still there. And I, to this day, I really want to become more of a part of the creation of music versus the regurgitation of it, which I love to do. I love putting on shows, obviously. But to create something new is just kind of exhilarating to think about. Hmm. So 
I've sat in on some friends that are producers around town and I've sat in during their sessions and stuff just to kind of see how it all works. Because it, it really is a whole different dialect. It's similar, like it's the same language, but it's just different. I don't know. Like I've had a hard time wrapping my brain around it. Yeah. Oh, I 100% agree. And yeah. it's kind of like you have the studio folks on one side, the live production folks over here. And mm-hmm. oh, sorry, audience, I'm making hand gestures you can't see. And then it even goes over to another side in broadcast for mm. broad- broadcast and television audio folks there. Like you say, it's like a language. There's commonality to the language, but there's such differences. Uh Uh-huh. Totally. And I think it's a whole mindset thing, too. Like, I know studio guys that'll sit and toil over a snare drum for two days because they just can't get it right. But when you're in a live scenario, it's like, well, this is the best it's going to be for this one. You know what I mean? Because we have a show to do. So that's kind of why I gravitate more toward live because I'm a little bit impatient and I like the quicker pace of it. I think I would drive myself crazy in a studio because it just feels slower, the pace, you know? Maybe yeah. not. I don't know. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Walk me through some of these different jobs that you've had in Nashville and tell me about your experience being in Nashville and progressing through. What challenges have you had? And and tell me about the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's been wild, honestly. The last year and a half has just been such a crazy journey. So the job I first got when I moved here was at a little production company and I was hired as a full-time audio engineer. And it wasn't a great fit for me But I ended up being there from March to June, literally three months. And the reason I was only there for such a short time is because I was scrolling through Facebook, the Sound Girls Facebook page, and I saw a job posting about a monitor engineer that was needed on tour. And I was like, hmm, this is on a console I've never used before, but I could figure it out. And so I was just like, put in my resume 
And a few weeks later, I got a text from the tour manager saying, can you be on a bus tomorrow morning? I'm sitting on my couch. It's 10 p.m. I have something lined up the next day for work. But I was like, yes, 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 yes. I can be there. I will be there at 8 a.m. And so I was able to get out of my thing for the next day. I got on the bus for like the trial show, essentially. And it went really well. And they really wanted me to stay on the tour. I remember the first thing that happened when I walked onto the bus, because they had gone through a bunch of different monitor engineers at the time. They couldn't find one that was a good fit. And so I walk on and everyone just goes, it's a girl. And they were very excited because <laughs> I think they had had a few creepy men walk on that bus in their attempt to find a monitor engineer. So they were like, please stay on the tour. The artist's manager texted me and asked me to stay. And so I had to call my full-time production company job the next day because I was supposed to go out on a show with them. But this new tour was about to go to Vegas and they were like, we need you there on Monday. And the two events were overlapping. So I had to call my production company job and be like, hey, so <laughs> I'm quitting. I'm flying out to go to Vegas tomorrow. So really sorry. <laughs> on a Saturday, it was not great. People were not happy with me. I was like shaking from fear because I hate disappointing people. I'm not very good at saying no and I'm trying to be better at that. But at the time, I was like, I'm maybe throwing away such a great opportunity. But it, I really wasn't. Honestly, what am I saying? It was not. And this tour was life changing for me, honestly. So I am so glad I did that. Looking back, it sucked at the moment. But, you know, you got to you, you got you to grab out. it when it's there. Yeah. You, know? you got to look yeah. out for you. Mm -hmm. I was like, they'll be fine. I think to this day, there are some people that have a little bit of a grudge against me for doing that. And I'm just like, it's not personal. When a tour is paying you that day rate versus what this little full-time job is paying me, plus it's my first tour. So anyway, I ended up getting on that. I did monitors, and then I moved into the production management role as well. And it was Weekend Warrior Tour. It was great. I was on an SXL. I had never used it. Literally that day I came onto the bus for the first time. I was like, hi, nice to meet everyone. Crawled into my bunk and like watched all of these YouTube oh, yeah. videos. Watch all the videos, like, yeah. Exactly. I need to know how to use this. Wow. So that lasted a year about. That, that moment when you walked on the bus and everybody went, it's a girl. Was there a large contention of females on that tour? There were two other girls on that tour. Okay. Well, and you know, quite honestly, it's just when it's balanced like that, I think a lot of guys too just kind of go, oh, cool. Plus, I'm just so friendly. Like, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, it was great. It was a killer first tour for me. That's got to be, and I know I keep coming back to this, but I think it's it's interesting to compare, like looking at your upbringing mm -hmm. and then here you are, like you're on a tour bus with a bunch of new strangers. You're kind of thrown into it. Clearly you embraced it, but how did you feel about that? Do you ever reflect on wow, I've really come a long way since my upbringing of- All the time. Of being in such a strict environment. Mm -hmm. All the time. I don't really think too much about the strictness of it. I think whether or not I was an isolated kid, I would have gotten to this point either way. If anything, it's possible that it set me apart from other people because I was raised so uniquely. I think that I just carry myself a little bit differently than other people just because that's how I was raised. Mm-hmm. So if anything, I, I like to think I stand out a little bit. Also, being a woman in this industry helps with that. 
But yeah, no, I reflect on it a lot. And I'm often just like, man, my dad would have been so fucking excited to like hear that I was doing this because it's essentially his dream. But like it's, you know, when you can't tell someone that it sucks. So I've been like very mellow thinking about it in the recent recent months for sure. So it's funny you say that. Yeah. Just kind of uh, taking stock of it and, and having an appreciation for how it's played out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, so one tour I'm sure leads to another tour, right? Yeah. Well, I ended up that tour didn't last. There was a confusion with management and stuff. So I ended up leaving that about a year into it. And then I was like, well, because it was essentially a full-time thing because she didn't stop touring. It mm-hmm. wasn't just one tour done. It was all year long, every year, same amount of tours. And so I went from having really stable, really good income to like nothing. And so I was just like, well, I guess I'm like embracing this freelance life. Uh, I don't know how to do this. But I ended up, I mean, when you meet people and you're and you're just a chill person, you're going to get phone calls. So that's essentially what ended up happening is I just started getting calls from friends. So the keyboard player has moved on to another gig and they needed a monitor engineer. And so they brought me out and we went to South Africa for two weeks. Wow. It was so cool. And then I did the Philip Phillips tour, which was super dope. That was just two weeks. And at the time it was my longest time out. And I was like, two weeks, this is a really long time. But I did monitors for him as well on a Pro 2C. And I know some people have wonderful things to say about it, but I do not. not it sounds great. It sounded great. I really didn't have to do much to make it sound good. Yeah. But it, it just feels so cheap. Mm. Ugh. Anyway, that's tangent. So I did that. And then I got in with some production companies around town because they provided the gear on some of the tours I was on. And then they got to know me. And so like I worked pretty closely with them. And then I got on the Lindsay Sterling tour from just an email, Hanging PA. And that was a whole thing because I've never done it before. Honestly, I've hung PA a couple times with my production company job that I had when I first moved here. But other than that, I had hung some JBL rigs twice and did it once and then it, we put it away and I didn't have to do it again. But so they offered me this gig and I was like, I really want to learn how to do this. And I think it would be really good for me to do, but I'm freaking out. But yes, I'll do it. And so I ended up taking like a corporate gig in advance of that tour just to get practice hanging PA because they said that I would be at the PA tech on this corporate gig. So I was like, the pay sucks, but I need practice before this tour. So I took it and hung it. Wasn't very comfortable, got on the tour, and it was crazy, a crazy learning curve for sure. So we hung Meyer, which it was tough. I mean, it was leopards and lions, which the the deployment for both of those systems are like two opposite systems of each other. So we would have one type of hang for the mains and then one type of hang for the sides. Uh-huh. And it was just so different. So at the end of every day, after a load and I, I would need to sit there and just try to remember how the hell to take it out of the air. Cause I was like, I don't remember cause it keeps switching. So we, we also had L acoustic subs and that was also different. And so it was just a bunch of different types of hanging and I couldn't remember for the life of me. And so I would sit down with my friend at the end of the day in preparation for tomorrow and my stomach hurt from being so nervous about hanging it again the next morning. And I was just like, remind me again, like how to get it into the air and how to keep it from kicking back or whatever, or how to get it off the cart. So 
it was just crazy. And it took me weeks before I like got into a groove. Mm -hmm. But then I finally did. And then by the end of it, I was loving it. I was having so much fun. So I have zero experience in that area. And I yeah. know, I can't say for certain, but my gut tells me most of my audience doesn't have a lot of experience in that department. So could sure. you kind of give us a bullet points of what's important? It sounds like it's a potentially highly dangerous job because if you do it wrong, you have a shit ton of weight coming down on people's heads that could kill uh -huh. people. Well, also keep in mind, this is the person that had gotten crushed by a speaker stack five years prior. <laughs> on the sidewalk? On the sidewalk. So, <laughs> and I'm, when I told my mom that I was taking this gig, she was so nervous because all she could remember was like me in the hospital after I was crushed by a speaker stack. So I went in a little nervous. Yeah, I mean, it's really honestly a very dangerous thing, especially when it's just you flying one side of the PA and then you have hands essentially doing the rest. And some hands are worse than others. Some are great, but some, they just have never touched a PA before, you know? And so it's kind of complicated to explain to them every single day and re-explain where the pins are supposed to go. And we have angle pins and we have locking pins and you pull the locking pin first so that the PA can open up once you take it out into the air. And then you have to lock it back up. And just having to explain it every day was was one of the most challenging parts, honestly. So so instead of just letting the hands do everything, I was very hands-on and like double-checked and triple-checked because if one of them fucked up, it was on me in both ways. So yeah, it was a lot of responsibility. I was really scared going into it. And it changed every day too, the deployment, because it was a shed tour. So it's not like an arena or a stadium where it's going to be like the same every day or like close to the same it was so different every single day. So you never know what to expect. It was crazy. And it's just an incredible amount of weight. Yeah, dude. Like 2,000 pounds, probably more. Crazy. Yeah. Well, and anyone that knows Meyer and understands flying, they know how heavy a lion box is because it's a powered box. And so instead of having like amps on stage, the amps are in the box. And so they are so fucking heavy. And there was one show where we got a lot of rain after sound check. So between sound check and the show, and it killed a couple of the boxes while they were, because we had landed them. But then once the rain stopped, it was like 30 minutes prior to show, everything turned back on, whatever, brought it back out into the air. And we were like, nothing, no sounds coming out of these boxes. So we had to bring it back in, which from now on, I know, make sure that they're working before you send them out into the air again. But we needed to go take a little lift to our truck, which was half a mile away, 20 minutes before showtime, get a spare stack and like rehang those boxes. And we had to hold doors for a few minutes. But we were able to do it, but it was just crazy. Insane. Yeah. Tell me about the challenges that you have encountered in this line of audio work, whether it's challenges on the road, like... How do you maintain a, a home base? There's bills coming in. There's, I mm -hmm. mean, obviously, you know, you can pay your bills online. Yes, I'm, I'm aware of that. But yeah. how do you kind of keep it all in motion? Because you're gone a lot. Right. Well, it, yeah, it's tough because it's, that's why I really liked my first gig, which was just strictly weekends because I had a set schedule. I was gone Thursday night to Sunday morning or whatever. And then I was home for four days and I could keep moving on with my personal life, you know, so I could 
clean my house. I could go grocery shopping. I did meal kits for like a while. So I would have HelloFresh or whatever, and they would shoot over three meals a week. And that's how, how I ate because going grocery shopping and having to throw away old food or whatever every week was so exhausting. And I also just hate grocery shopping. So it was just a lot of like, and I'm still figuring it out because I was just out for five weeks straight with with the Lindsay Sterling tour. And now I'm back on Weekend Warrior. But then I'm not even fully back out on Weekend Warrior because there's a break in October. It's weird because it changes all the time. So I really try to just socialize whenever I'm home, get drinks with friends, make sure that people don't forget that I exist. I've tried to like work in production shops on weekdays here and there, but I just, I hate being in shops, honestly. So I try to avoid it as much as I can. Do you feel like you've got a grip on managing the inconsistency of the money? Yes, because the jobs I get pay actually really well. I have a minimum number that I'll accept a gig for and a number that I would say no to a gig for. So anything under a certain number, I just say no to. So it kind of helps me stay in a certain range for sure. But it's tough. I'm actually like trying to move right now. And being a freelancer, it's really hard because I don't have consistent pay stubs. I don't have a normal W-2 job. And it's honestly really challenging, which is shocking in Nashville. I feel like people would be a little bit more like understanding of that lifestyle. So that's, that's a really challenging part that I'm realizing right now. Because when I moved here and got my place, I had a full-time job lined up. But now I'm full-on freelancing. And I, I'm pretty much booked all the time. But it's just so inconsistent, like the pay and when I'm getting paid and, and all of that. So that's probably the most challenging part right now is figuring out how to make the gig economy look actually convincing. Yeah. I'm making money. I could pay for, I can pay for your apartment, trust me. But you just, I can't prove it. Right. Now, in the world of the studio and making records, you know, obviously people build on album credits. How does one in the live field really build a reputation and a, and a work history? Is, is LinkedIn part of that equation? I use LinkedIn. I know a lot of people don't. They think it's dumb. I like it because I, I have connected with a lot of people on there. Mm -hmm. um, I use Instagram a lot. To me, I think Instagram and I think just in general, it's become the new like portfolio, how people oh, yeah. have like the online portfolios. Instagram is essentially that now. And so I'm always trying to post pictures or videos of what I'm doing. If I'm on a new console, I will post about it. I've gotten gigs from strangers on Instagram because they've seen me on an SXL, you know, and they're like, oh, I need someone to run an SXL for this for this tour here. Can you do it? And I'm like, sure. So that's a huge part of it, honestly. So I try to stay really active on social media just for that reason. And then I think it's just being around. I did like DM7 demo a few weeks back with a couple audio friends of mine. And I'm just hang out with people and hang out with your peers in the industry because if you're a good hang, people are going to want to work with you, you know? It's literally just about are you a cool person to hang out with? And, yeah. then, and then some are you good at your job, obviously. But like... Unfortunately, a lot of people that suck to hang out with are still getting work, which I don't understand why. But I think that's a huge part of it is the relationships and also just the social media aspect for me. And then the networking, would you agree that that's a huge part? Huge. Yeah. So like the school that I went to, they're still going and they put on shows every single week still. And so I try to go as often as I can and just 
meet some of the new people about to come into the industry because you know they're all about to move to Nashville like I did. And you never know what a relationship is going to bring. Also, I just love getting to know people in this industry a lot, especially like new people. So I try to get coffee with especially a lot of women in this industry when they have questions and stuff. I've only been touring for a year and a half, but I feel like I've learned a shit ton in that amount of time. And so I just want to like be helpful, you know? Yeah. Pass some of that on. How do you deal with clashes of personalities, whether you're working in a shop or whether you're on tour or on a gig? How do you deal with that? What do you think is the best way to deal with that? Man, there were a few of those this year. (laughs) But honestly, I think that in the end, you're still a team. You're still trying to achieve the same goal together. And so even if you can't stand that person at all, I think reminding yourself, and that's what I've had to do a bunch of times this year, is just remind myself that, okay, this person is still my teammate. We're still achieving the same goal here. I can set aside my personal opinions or our personal clashes for the reason that we're all here. It's because we love music. I hope that's why they're here. That's why I'm here. So I just try to see the best in people. But it's tough because I I am a really like observant person when it comes to people. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty good at picking out when they're going to be a douche and when they're not going to be a douche. (laughs) I've had a pretty good track record so far, but I really try to give people the benefit of the doubt for sure. And just I think hanging out my whole life with just a horrible dad helped me be very pleasant around people I don't like. And so I'm very good at pretending to be happy and like someone (laughs) and just make it chill, you know? Yeah, sometimes you just got to smile and just move forward and ignore the douchebags in, in this world. Mm-hmm. Your siblings, are they involved in music industry whatsoever? Not really, no. My sister is doing like a worship program. She wants to be a worship leader. So I guess that's the closest. She's written some songs, actually, but they're all they're all over the place. They're doing all their own things. It's crazy. Do you ever wonder, I wonder why I got into this and my siblings didn't? Sometimes. I don't know. I don't think it's for the faint of heart. The music industry and the touring industry, for sure. You really need a thick skin. And some of my siblings are pretty sensitive. Mm. I don't think they could handle it. Yeah, yeah. But you know who you are if you're listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to name any names. No, but they know. Do you feel that it also attracts a certain entrepreneurial type of person. Mm-hmm. Totally. I mean, you need to be able to like, not just entrepreneurial, yes, but I would also say just doing something uncomfortable, you know, like quitting your job the day before you're supposed to go out with them. Like in hindsight, that's the best thing I ever could have done. But I know so many people that wouldn't have done it because they would want to give two weeks notice or whatever, you know, and then they would missed out on an opportunity. So I think it's just a priorities thing, honestly, of always remembering what your personal goals are for your life and what they are for your career and just not letting anything like get in the way of that. Honestly, I have a lot of friends that like want to tour really bad, but they they have a dog now and they went and got a dog. And now they're like, well, now I can't tour because I have a dog. And I'm like, well, but why'd you get the dog priorities? If you really want to tour, put the dog somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, right. Who watches your cat when you go? My sister. She she lives in Nashville, too. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. You got a built-in cat sitter. That's good. I do. It's great. And <laughs> she's a college student, so she needs the money. So I just give her like 50 bucks every weekend. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Do you have a website that you maintain at all? Or do you mainly focus on social media? 
Mostly social media. I haven't really had much content to put on a website because I've been doing monitors for so long. I've just transitioned into a front of house position though, which I'm really, really excited about. And so once I start to get some like really solid board tapes and stuff, I'm not really sure how to make a website for this kind of thing. I'm going to be completely honest because it's not really like the studio thing where where you can put the songs that you've done on there. So I'm not really sure even what I'm allowed to post on a website. If I have a board tape, if I'm even allowed to put that on there, I'm going to be honest. Yeah, yeah. If someone has any idea, tell me. Maybe it's more about listing of the experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have my resume. I have my LinkedIn for that. I try to keep very consistent on my Instagram. So like I have a highlight real thing on it. So if someone clicks on it, they can see all of the people that I've worked with just by clicking through. So that's essentially what I do. I haven't really needed to like share my resume or LinkedIn with anyone really for gigs yet, though. Like it's all been word of mouth thus far, yeah. which I'm really grateful for. For the audience in the show notes, I'll put your Instagram and your LinkedIn just so they yeah. can kind of follow up there. And if, especially if you're looking for a front of house person or if you feel like stepping back into the monitor position. Yeah, dude. Or if you have a PA you want flown. Dude, I'll fly your PA. Just, <laughs> just I don't want it to fall on me is all. <laughs> yeah. Or anybody else for that matter. Yeah, right. Well, fantastic to meet you and, and to talk to you. Thank you so much for making time for me. I appreciate that. And I always say this to my guests that I meet over Zoom and I'm sure we'll meet in person at some point. It's a small yeah. world. So uh, thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you. This was fun. Yeah. All right. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Abigail LaBianca here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I certainly appreciate it. I, I know you all come back week after week, and that is, you know, means a lot to me, honestly. So keep doing it. And if you don't mind, uh, two things. If you could leave a five-star review at your podcast aggregator to let the world know that there's some cool shit going on over here. And if you don't mind telling a friend, tell a fellow audio professional about the podcast, get them to listen that would be fantastic. I would appreciate that as well. Uh, but that's it. That's all for me today. And I want to thank the people that I definitely depend on. And that would be my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale in the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Chuck Smith at the top of the show. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, and you can always send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, 
and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 